0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Let's start this evening by talking about what we're doing and why we're doing it here on Wednesday nights. Because last week when we got done, I said to Tom and Micah, I said, I feel like I'm beginning to beat a dead horse. And does it feel that way? Because I'm saying the same thing week after week after week after week. But I'm saying it from different passages because I'm trying to demonstrate something. And Micah said, well, if you're beating a dead horse, it's because the Bible's beating that same horse. And I said, well, okay, good, because tonight I will be engaging in similar equine beating, dead equine beating. What I've been trying to demonstrate over the last several weeks is that Hosea, though considered one of the minor prophets, is a perfect encapsulization of the overarching theology of God's dealings with Israel. And so Hosea gives us a a really good outline, a really good platform to work from. But each week as we have gone through individual chapters of Hosea, I have also reached into some of the major prophets, into Jeremiah, into Isaiah, into Ezekiel, to show that they all say the exact same thing. I really don't know why this is so controversial. I got an email even yesterday from an online listener who's still struggling with the idea of true Israel or spiritual Israel because so many folk who are raised in the covenantal tradition aren't taught the Old Testament history of God's dealings with Israel or anything about the Old Testament prophets and that those prophets are all dealing with Israel. And so when you get to the New Testament and you see references to Israel or God's dealings with Israel, all too often what theologues and preachers end up doing is saying, well, this isn't national Israel, because national Israel has rebelled against God. National Israel has not obeyed the law of God, and therefore they're under the curse that is attendant to the law, and therefore these New Testament promises can't be for Israel, so they must be for the church. And then they use language that you don't find anywhere in the Bible. They speak of the church as spiritual Israel, but no New Testament writer uses the phrase spiritual Israel. They speak of true Israel as opposed to some false Israel, and they'll go to 9-6 of Romans. They're not all Israel who are of Israel. And they'll ignore the context completely. They'll ignore the second half of that sentence. That phrase, they're not all Israel who are of Israel, they assume, means that there is a true Israel and a false Israel. And so then they just start defining what that means. I think it's Galatians six sixteen where Paul speaks of the Israel of God. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, and those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. And they leap right from there to, well, that can't mean national Israel, so that must mean the church, who is some form of true or spiritual Israel. And yet Paul, consistently from beginning to end in all of his writing, he himself being an Israelite, being a Benjamite, never once uses the word Israel in any other way than genuine literal Israel. Sometimes he speaks of a remnant within Israel. Sometimes he speaks of Israel who are enemies of the gospel for your sake. But in every instance, when he uses the word Israel, he means Israel. And Paul never creates a subcategory of the church or a nickname for the church that is spiritual Israel or true Israel. That just doesn't happen. And so that's part of the reason that I've been taking these weeks going through Hosea to show that the prophets do indeed speak with one voice. I've used that phrase a lot of times. And what I mean by it is the prophets all say the same thing. And they say it over and over again. And it includes, Israel has indeed sinned against God, has not kept God's law, and is currently being punished by God. That's all true. But that's not the end of the story. All of the prophets not only admit that the northern tribes and the southern tribes have rebelled and that they are currently under the weight of their rebellion and the recompense that is due their rebellion but every single one of Israel's prophets all say that God is going to restore Israel because of promises he made to Abraham Isaac and Jacob because of a promise he made to David that his son was going to sit on David's throne and rule over the 12 tribes And there are just certain realities in the New Testament that, to my way of thinking, are just sort of unavoidable, like when you get to the book of Revelation, and Revelation 21 describes the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven that is built on 12 foundations that are the 12 apostles, but there are 12 gates, three on each of the four sides, and each of those gates has the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, that means something. The fact that the 144,000 spoken of in the book of Revelation are 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and then they're named, and yet I can't tell you how common it is to hear interpreters say the 144,000 is the church, and they just say that and run away. You know, It's like throwing that grenade into the room, and then they'd run for cover, because they know that they can't prove it exegetically. They know that they can't prove it textually or contextually, but that's part and parcel of the larger scheme, so they're forced to say it because they can't allow that God is going to have any kind of dealings with national Israel in the future. They want to say God is done with Israel, and so for weeks As we've been going through Hosea, I've been trying to show time and time again that these very, very important phrases and promises show up repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. And if you don't know your Old Testament history, if you don't know the Old Testament prophets, then when you start reading in the New Testament, you don't have the same grounding that the New Testament writers and readers have. Jesus frequently makes direct reference to the prophets. The Law and the Prophets. He says that he's fulfilling the Law and the Prophets. When he was on the Emmaus Road talking to the two of his disciples, it says that beginning at the Law and the Prophets, he showed them all the things concerning himself. Jesus' ministry and his proof and evidence that he was who he said he was is rooted and grounded in the Prophets. And if you don't understand the Prophets, then you really don't understand the similarities when you get to a book like Revelation... And you get to Revelation, and there are all these direct references and allusions to books like Ezekiel. Or there's a whole lot of Zechariah, which we might look at tonight. There's a whole lot of Zechariah in the book of Revelation. There's direct references and allusions from the book of Isaiah and the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a very Old Testament-sounding Jewish apocalyptic kind of book. If the book of Revelation just happened to be in the Old Testament, it would read pretty much the same. Because it is so similar to what we read in the Old Testament prophecies. You get to the book of Matthew, the most Jewish of the Gospels, right at the beginning of the New Testament. And you bump immediately into Matthew making references back to the prophets as evidence that the Jesus he's talking about, Jesus of Nazareth, is indeed the Christ to come, the Messiah, the one who is David's greater son. And he keeps reaching back to the prophets to prove it. So if you're not versed in the prophets, when you read that stuff in the New Testament, you're really not going to understand the importance of it. Why, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, why did he quote repeatedly from the Old Testament? Everything he said, down to I thirst, is from the Psalms and from the prophets. He He, was. Jesus said the scriptures cannot be broken. And the way God has written this into the Bible, and you can see it, and it's so plain, but it's written in there in such a... How would you ever imagine to write it in such a way? It's just the most intriguing thing. Well, and and you make a very good point, Gladys, which is that if this Bible that we have in our hands was a man-made concoction... It couldn't be. It would not fit together the way it does. You couldn't get the number of men who contributed to this book over the course of a thousand years, you couldn't get them to all end up agreeing the way that they ultimately do. You can see why Paul would say every word of Scripture is God-breathed. Okay, well, that was the next point I wanted to make. When Paul says all Scripture is theonostos and then useful useful for a lot of things for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness the scripture he's referring to is what we call the old testament and that's what paul says is all god breathed and yet so many churches ignore all this stuff in the old testament which is as i keep saying the basis, the foundation of everything you read in the New Testament. And so if you're only reading the New Testament without a good, reasonable understanding of what's happening in the Old Testament, whatever you're getting out of the New Testament at that point is truncated, is minimized, is reduced. You're not getting a full-orbed Bible education if the only way you're reading the New Testament is on its own, without having that lens of the Old Testament to view it through. And so that's why we're doing what we're doing, because I think if, uh, if you come away with nothing else over the course of these lessons, you will come away with the one central theme, which is God's not done with Israel. He's just not done with Israel. And if you get that right, then you won't get raised up in your ego and start thinking, it is about me. That's right. Once the church got here, Ta-da, God's done. He finally got to us, and that's what he was always aiming for. And, uh, and he's done with Israel, and he made a bunch of promises to Israel, but those don't count anymore because he got to us. I'm going to just interrupt you with this time, But the Bible speaks that Israel will be the wife of God, mm-hmm. the Father, and the church will be the bride. Bride of Christ. Christ. Very different language. Right. But just as importantly... As we move through Matthew on Sunday mornings and we get into Matthew 24, which is going to take us unavoidably into eschatology again, even biblical eschatology is rooted and informed by Old Testament prophecy. Jesus in Matthew 24 isn't saying anything that the prophets haven't already described and said. He's just confirming that stuff. And that becomes really, really obvious when you have an Old Testament understanding. If you don't have an Old Testament understanding, then you have to find a way to understand that stuff and some place to hang it because you just don't have the grounding that you need to understand Jesus' words. So even eschatologically, the same way that you said Israel is referred to as the wife of God, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ, two different things, same thing happens when you get into end-time eschatological things. God deals with the church one way and he deals with Israel another way. And if you conflate those, you end up with a bad eschatology to go along with your bad theology to accompany your bad Bible understanding and exegesis. I was looking for another ology word and I got stumped. Hosea chapter 4. Now, at this point in the book of Hosea, God has already told Isaiah Through his children, through his wife, who was a, a prostitute, he has already laid out the master plan. Israel is guilty, so they're not my people, so there is no mercy, but in the place where they're called not my people, there they will be called my people. In the place where there was no mercy, I will have mercy on them. And so the big master plan has already been laid out. God has already said, you're guilty, so I'm going to put you out but then I'm going to block you away from your lovers, I'm going to hedge you about, and then I'm going to bring you back to me. And I showed you how several of the prophets use that same language, that God is going to lay Israel bare until they have no place else to go, and so they end up going back to their husband because that's the one place they know they can return. And, and chapter 3 of Hosea is all very, very positive language. I bought her for myself, and I brought her back to myself and I said to her you shall stay with me for many days and you'll not play the harlot nor will you have a man so I will be toward you for the sons of Israel will remain for many days without a king or a prince without sacrifice or sacred pillar without an ephod or household idols we talked about that word last week and afterwards the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days and and then there's this huge transition starting at what we call chapter 4 verse 1 and it is God saying and I think in some ways answering an unspoken question but it is God saying I have a case against you because I think the unspoken question is well if you're going to do that for us just do it and so God defends his righteous judgment and defends why they are so guilty that they need to go through the punishment in order to reach the point of restoration. So chapter 4 is just God laying out his case. Actually, 4 and 5 is just God laying out his case against Israel and against Judah for all the things they've done, the ways that they've behaved. Now, one of the things you'll notice right away is when he starts listing the way that they are and the things that they've done... It's really a description of human nature. It's a description of how people are to this very moment. Right now, as you read these things, you'll recognize, oh, well, people are doing that even now. The difference is that Israel were God's chosen people. Israel had the advantage of a law from God and 613 ordinances, and a priesthood, and a temple, and a sacrifice, and feast days, and a covenant, and promises. So they had every potential advantage over all the other nations of the world. Even though the other nations of the world were like this, because this was human nature, God's expectation was that Israel would be different. However, as we saw, even as God gave Moses All these rules back in the book of Exodus, he said, Now they're not going to keep these rules. I'm going to give them all these rules. I'm going to make this covenant. I'm going to put this covenant. I'm going to impose this covenant on them. But they're not going to do it because consistently throughout the Bible, thematically, what we know is unless God changes a person from the inside, unless he does something. To change their human nature, take out that hard heart, put in a heart of flesh, unless God puts his spirit inside a person, even if they have every advantage, even if they have the covenants and the promises, even if they have the law and the priesthood and the temple, they still will end up reverting back to their human nature because the leopard can't change his spots. Always human beings are going to go back to what they're like. And so that's what God is blaming them for. And you have to understand that when God makes this case, he's saying, this is how guilty you are in contrast to, but I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to be good. I'm going to have mercy. You're going to be my people. And that's the way God always deals with people. This is very informative to our overarching theology because Thaddeus is in this description. Gladys, as sweet as she is, is in this description. Conrad is really in this description. No, I'm sorry. I mean, we're we're all in this description because this is what humans are like by nature. And anybody who ultimately stands before God and is not judged, it is always a result of grace and mercy. It is never a result of our capability. And you're going to see that again when he says Israel is just guilty, 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 guilty and I'm going to be good to you. Mm-hmm. And that is why the theology we teach is you are guilty, 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 and God is going to be good to you. Yeah. Well, yes, you ma'am. I, just a thought occurred to me. Um, of course, we know that Jesus Christ paid for our sins through his death because of his perfect life. But how does the, the Lord, the Father, simply accept the Israelites' By his mercy, and there's no sin debt paid. Is that correct? Right, but the sin debt, the basis on which he is going to forgive Israel, is on the finished work of Christ. All right. Remember the phrase, all the promises of God in him are yea and amen? Okay. When Christ died, he died to pay the sin debt for all God's people. All right. Right? right? It's not every human being who ever lived, but it's everybody God's going to save. You go back to the book of Daniel and When Daniel is describing the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, he says, but Israel will be saved through it, everyone who's written in the book. That language keeps going on of of God picking, choosing. And those people, because they're they're in the book, same way you're in the book, and you know what, hold on to that thought because we might even get to it tonight if I shut up and start teaching. Um, if, I, if I stop rambling and, and look at the text, we might even get to Isaiah tonight where he's going to say that Israel is a nation born in a day. This, this week we had men's meeting last night here and Tyler said that when he was converted from his Church of Christ background, that it was so instantaneous that in that moment, everything changed. Yes. That suddenly he just got it and the lights all went on. He even said the grass was greener and the sky was bluer and you know the sun shined more, And didn't he? Yes, did. Yeah. He said, and I felt like this gigantic weight was lifted off my shoulders. Okay, if God can do that with one person, can he do it with a nation if he wants? Well, Isaiah argues that's exactly what he's going to do. A nation born in an instant, a nation born in a day and so but it will be on the basis of Christ and his finished work which is why Zechariah says that they will look on him whom they have pierced and weep as a mother weeps over her only child which phrase Jesus picks up in talking to the Pharisees and saying you won't see me again until you say here's the one whom we pierced sometimes our critics try to accuse us of saying that we're saying that there are two different means or ways of salvation, one for the church and one for Israel. That's not what we're saying. The means of salvation is always the finished work of Christ, always. Mm-hmm. But the process is different. The church goes up in the rapture. Mm-hmm. Israel goes through the time of Jacob's trouble. Mm-hmm. That's two different things. Right. But it's all wrapped up in Christ. Mm-hmm. So does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Now I understand. Okay. It was a long answer to a short question. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. That's legal language. God is now going to enter his court and lay out his case. I have something against you. Because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. By the way, that language is picked up in Luke 18, 8. Somebody turn there. Let me turn to Luke 18, 8, while I write this on the board. Got it. And what does it say? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Okay, so there's Jesus himself saying, When I return, when the Son of Man returns, will I find faith? On the earth. Now, the word that is translated "earth" there is this little tiny Greek word "ge," "gay," which is the basis for all of our geo words: geology, geography. It all has to do with land. So, when I, will I find faith on the earth? Some of your translations will say, "Will I find faith in the land?" Because that's the essence of what that word means. It's the same idea as what we're reading here in Hosea 4, because there's no faithfulness, no kindness or knowledge of God in the land. And Jesus said, and when I return, will I find faith in the land? And so Jesus may very well be saying, not universally, will I find faith anywhere on the planet. He might be speaking of Israel, the people he was talking to at the time and condemning at the moment. He might mean, when I return, will I find faith in Israel or in this specific land, the way that Hosea is? Or he might be saying, will I find faith on the earth, on the planet? It can be interpreted either way, and I'm actually okay with it either way. But what you have to see again is that this is one of those elements where God expects faith. He expects kindness. He expects the knowledge of God. Now, remember, these are the people who he has given promises and covenants and revelation of himself the law they have more revelation of who god is than any other people group on the planet and yet god says there's no faithfulness there's no kindness and there's no knowledge of god in the land i think we could make the same accusation today because even though there is a bible in every hotel room thanks to the gideons even though there's Plenty of preaching on the internet or TV or radio. Not all good, but it exists. Good stuff is out there. Even though we have access not just to Bibles, but study Bibles that will give you some hints and some clues and some notes and some commentary so that you can read the Bible for yourself. Despite having all those advantages and being blessed unlike any nation in the history of the world has ever been blessed here in America, if Jesus returned right now, would he find faith in the land? How about kindness or the knowledge of God? Mm-hmm. Pretty slim, huh? I mean the real knowledge of God. I don't mean the people who say, well, I'm going to be okay when I die because I believe in God. James answers that one. He says, you say you believe in God, you do well. Every demon in hell believes in God. Mm-hmm. So really, what advantage was that? Mm-hmm. Because it takes more than that. It also takes faith. It takes faith in the finished work of Christ. It takes that revelation of Christ and that change of heart and that born-again experience, takes all of that. Just admitting that God exists, well, if that were all that it took, then everybody who believes in a whole pantheon that includes the God who made heaven and earth, oh, good enough, close enough, good, you're saved. But it takes much more than that. Salvation takes a very specific kind of faith in the Son of God, not merely I think I know who God is, and I sort of believe he's kind of up there, and if he exists, he probably likes me. No, it's knowledge of God. And as I said, Israel had a greater revelation of God than any people group, and yet God would accuse them of having no knowledge of him. And by the way, the fear of the Lord is the very beginning of wisdom. They had no fear of him. They had no reverence of him. They had no knowledge of him. Then he describes what they're like. Verse 2, there is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. Well, that describes America today, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Actually, it describes every nation on the planet today. Actually, it describes every people group on the planet today because this is the human nature. This is human character. And Israel, who should have known better, Israel, who had the advantages, Israel, who had covenants and promises and revelations of God, were acting just like the rest of the planet, just like all the rest of the people. And so God could say, I have a case against you. And it's a legitimate case. I've given you things and advantages I gave nobody else. And you're just like everybody else. And by the way, Again, we could really apply that to so much of the church, couldn't we? Mm -hmm. I gave you every advantage, and yet you're just like the world. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky, and also the fish of the sea disappear. Yet, now he's going to accuse the leaders in Israel for not saying anything about it, not standing up and fixing it. Yet, let no one find fault and let no one offer reproof. The leaders, the spiritual leaders, the priests, should have stood up, should have intervened, should have interceded and said, don't be like this. The kings, of course, we were going through, first and second kings, and we saw the succession of kings who were supposed to stand in God's stead and be righteous leaders in God's land and how they went from bad to worse, bad to worse, bad to worse. And so in God making his case against Israel, he could say, not only are you like this, you're swearing deception, murder, stealing, adultery, violence, bloodshed, follows bloodshed, and no one finds fault and no one offers reproof. Sound familiar? It's going on in the world today. There's all this anger and violence and lying and bloodshed. And who's ever standing up and saying, quit it? No, instead what we're doing is finding new ways to excuse it, new ways to uh, rationalize it and say, well, uh, I guess we just need to legalize that. Because <laughs> you know what the argument is. Well, they're going to do that anyway. And since they're going to be like that anyway, you know, we can't expect our teenagers not to have sex. So let's just get them condoms because, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. That's the thinking. And no matter how bad it gets, no matter how many Christians are slaughtered by ISIS, people are going to find some excuse to not intervene, not reprove it, not do anything. The people who have the power, who have the ability to go in and help, don't. This is very relevant, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yet, let no one find fault and uh, let no one offer reproof for your people are like those who contend with the priest. What that means is the priest is the one who intercedes between men and God. The priest is the one who says, this is how God must be approached. These are the sacrifices you have to bring. And people argue with him. But people are still arguing with the word of God to this very moment. The word of God says, be like this, be like that. And people go, "I, I don't have to do that. I don't want to do that. Besides, I don't think it means that. And it certainly doesn't mean me. You're like those kind of people who contend with a priest. So, here's what's going to happen to you. So, you will stumble by day, and the prophet will also stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. Somebody turn to Galatians 4.26, by the way. Talk about that phrase, your mother. I am convinced that the phrase, your mother, there is a reference to Jerusalem. Paul uses that language in Galatians 4.26 in comparing Jerusalem, which is above, and Jerusalem, which is below, And he says that Jerusalem that is above is the mother of us all, right? Is that Galatians 4.26? Yes. Read that for us. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Okay, so that concept of Jerusalem as mother is, I think, pretty consistent biblically. So I will destroy your mother is a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That doesn't mean because they don't know anything about science, or that they don't know anything about mathematics, or they don't know how to build anything. Remember what he accused them of? There is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land, and that lack of knowledge of God will destroy them. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. I don't want to keep saying this over and over. I sound like a broken record, but um, hello, America. Mm -hmm. Lack of godly knowledge, though you've had every advantage, though you have access, unlike any nation in the history of the world. Nevertheless, the people are being destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. Okay, now it's not just general ignorance. But you've rejected the knowledge of God. You had access to it. You had the law, Israel. You had the revelation. You had Moses. You have the prophets. You have the priests. You have the the temple. You have the intercessory work. You have all of that, and you reject it. And I will also reject you from being my priest. In other words, nobody in Israel anymore is going to be able to intercede between God and man. When God pours out that punishment... There's no priest that's going to stand in the middle and say, quick, let's kill some bulls. Mm. God's going to reject all of that. I will reject, because you've rejected knowledge of me, I will reject you from being my priest since you have forgotten the law of your God. I also will forget your children. The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity. Instead of desiring God, instead of desiring the things of God, they have rejected the knowledge of God, but the thing that they love, the thing that they chase after is their sin, their iniquity. The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. So I'm going to change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and they direct their desire toward their iniquity. And it will be like people, like priest. So I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. And they will eat but not have enough. They will play the harlot but not increase. Because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. My people consult their wooden idols, and their diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot departing from their god. They offer sacrifices on the tops of mountains, and they burn incense on the hills, under oak and poplar and terebinth, because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot, And your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot or your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlotry and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes. So the people without understanding are ruined. Though you, Israel, now he's real clear about what he's talking about. He's talking to Israel and speaking against the nation for their chasing of other gods and for their desire for sin and their lack of understanding of the things of God. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, do not let Judah become guilty. Also, do not go to Gilgal or go up to Beth Avon and take the oath as the Lord lives. This is, again, a theme that we've seen a few times where God has said, Israel, the northern tribes, have fallen into their adultery, their idolatry, chased the foreign gods, chased the gods of the Assyrians and the, the nations around them. And so Judah should have been wiser. Judah should have known. Judah should have recognized that God was punishing Israel, the northern tribes, throwing them out of their land because of all the things they had done, and therefore Judah should have been wiser, but instead, Judah ends up being just as bad and even worse, and therefore God holds Judah even guiltier. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, do not let Judah become guilty. Also, do not go to Gilgal or up to Beth-Avon. These are the places of this foreign worship. Don't go to the foreign temples. Don't chase after the foreign gods, and don't take the oath as the Lord lives, But since Israel is stubborn, like a stubborn cow, I like the way God speaks, like a stubborn heifer, can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? Ephraim is joined to idols, so let him alone. Their liquor is gone. They play the harlot continually. Their rulers dearly love shame. The wind wraps them in its wings and they will be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Okay, so that's chapter four of Hosea. Now, if we're going to follow the model that we followed the last few weeks, we would go look at some of the other prophets to see if they say the same thing and to see where they end up. And I came loaded for bear tonight and it's already 10 minutes to eight. And I've got enough material to keep us here Till Friday, So I'll just pick a couple of select moments and we'll hold the rest for next week. And we'll just keep doing it and keep doing it until we're just saturated with this. Until we're all collectively beating dead horses. So that we just really get a sense of this is what the Bible says over and over and over again. Let's go ahead and go to Isaiah since I brought that up. In answer to Marilyn's question, let's go to Isaiah 66. I love these kinds of declarations from God. When God says, who do you think you are? And who do you think I am? And what do you think you can do for me that would obligate me or make me go, oh, well done you? Thus says the Lord, chapter 66, 1 of Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? He says, I I sit on a throne in heaven, and I put my feet on the earth. And you think you're going to build something on the earth that would be a good place for me to hang? Where then is the house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Okay, so you can't build a place to worship him that is sufficient to say, this is clearly where God dwells. God dwells in the heavens. He dwells on his throne. He rests his feet on the earth. And even all those things, heaven and earth, are things that he made. So you can't make anything that is going to impress or satisfy a God like that. And despite that, he says, but I will pay attention to one kind of person. And that's the kind of person who is of a humble and a contrite spirit. That means lack of ego. What we looked at this last Sunday, Jesus saying, if you're going to come after me, take up your cross and follow me. Come to an end of yourself. Stop advancing your own ego. Stop operating by pride to him who is of a humble and a contrite spirit and one who, important word, trembles at my word. You don't take the word of God lightly. Think about it. Expand your thinking for just a moment. If, in fact, this is the very word, a direct communication from the one who made heaven and earth, and you are a mere creature, one of the billions and billions of creatures who will inhabit this dusty ball over the course of time on the planet, and yet God has paid attention to you, inclines his ear to you. And communicates with you through his word. That is such a phenomenal privilege. That is such a remarkable thing. That to take that lightly or to take it as a a mere happenstance. As an unimportant thing. As something you can take or leave. That is the height of arrogance. Here I'll put it this way. I'm no fan of just about anybody in Washington right now. But if the phone rang and one of the kids say, it's the White House, Obama has heard you online and would like to speak to you. It doesn't matter what I think of Obama. We have our political differences, but I'm taking that phone call because that's a phone call that's coming from a place of power. And anytime you have an opportunity to speak truth to power, you take that opportunity. So I'm getting on the phone. Barry, we got things to discuss. You know, that conversation's happening. Okay, so now God himself, the maker of heaven and earth who chose you before the foundation of the world, who wrote your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life, the God who has infinite knowledge, who is everywhere all at once, in whom exists all power, who knows the name of every star by name, and he placed it right where it's supposed to be in the expanse of his universe, the God who's in charge of every microbe and every germ and every... Virus that runs around on his planet who keeps your heart beating and keeps your mind going so that you know your own name, the one who gives you sight and vision and hearing, the one who keeps your heart beating, the God who is in charge of absolutely everything and there is nothing anywhere in his creation that he didn't create and sustain and that serves his ultimate purpose. That God has spoken to you. And you take that lightly? No, here he says, tremble at it. Pay attention to it. The wisdom that comes from from the fear of the Lord, the reverence of God. One thing that I do like about Jewish worship is that they do spend an awful lot of time on their knees with their forehead on the ground in front of God. And we've lost a great deal of that. We have lost the grace to know how to be ashamed will burst into God's presence thinking we're something and we have lost the ability to to tremble before him and recognize that you're dealing with the genuine God of ages and that he would welcome you to bring your prayers and your petitions come talk to him and With thanksgiving, let him know what it is you need and what it is you're thinking about. And The remarkable, the phenomenal privilege that we have as mere creatures to go talk to the creator of everything, and we take that so lightly, we take it so for granted, we have become way too familiar, and we don't even feel it when we encroach on him. And we should, because we feel it when we encroach on someone else. We feel it if we're standing in line at Publix and someone's standing too close to us. You're in my space, man. You want to back off a little bit? That's an encroachment on me. And we will encroach on God without giving it a second thought. Mm -hmm. And he's the one that we really ought to be paying attention to. Again, as we read earlier, that oath as the Lord lives, that consciousness, that constant awareness. God is alive. God is real. And God is here right now. Now how should I live? How should I behave? What should I say? What should I do with that knowledge that the God who made heaven and earth is present with me right here, right now? How would that affect your behavior if you ever really got a hold of it? Right? So, to him who is humble and of a contrite spirit who trembles at my word. That's not really what I was trying to get to. I'm trying to get to the Israel stuff, but I couldn't go past that verse without talking about it because it's a really important thought. So now he's talking about Israel, but he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. Okay, so God has said, kill oxen. And he has said, kill goats and doves. Bring me sacrifices. And at this point, God is so frustrated with Israel that he's saying, even when you bring the sacrifices to me, I'm going to hold you guilty as if you were killing a man now. This is how much I am not impressed by your sacrifices. You think you're going to make it okay by bringing me dead animals? That's not going to do it anymore. He that kills an ox is like one that slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. You couldn't bring a dog to God as a sacrifice. And people well, I brought you the best of my animals. I brought you my best sheep. He says, I'm so tired of your sacrifices because you have no faith in me. You have no concern for me. You bring me a lamb, I'm going to treat it like you brought me a dog. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. God's not impressed with your sacrifices. He who burns incense is like one who blesses an idol. And they have chosen their own ways. And their soul delights in their abominations. So I will choose their punishments. And I will bring on them what they dread. Because I called, but no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. And they did evil in my sight And they chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they will be put to shame. A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. But then look at verse 7, suddenly the tone changes. He's still talking about Israel, first he has to punish them. This is the same thing we see over and over again. Israel's guilty, he's going to punish them. What's the result? Verse 7, before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? These are rhetorical questions. The answer is yes. God can birth Israel in a moment and a nation in a day. And he says, and it'll be so quick, it'll be so miraculous that this birth won't even be pain. As soon as she starts to travail, as soon as that first pain hits, it's a boy. Hand out the cigars. Verse 7 again. Behold, she travailed. She brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who's heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? Now he's going to tell you exactly who he's talking about. As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not deliver, says the Lord? Or shall I, who gives delivery, shut the womb, says the Lord? Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice with her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her. That you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breasts, that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, behold, I extend peace to her like a river. Does that sound familiar? We sing it. When peace like a river attendeth my way, behold, I extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall be nursed. You shall be carried on her hip and fondled on her knees as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Okay, there's the pattern. Again, all I'm trying to show you is the consistent pattern. No matter where we go, go to Isaiah, go to Ezekiel, go to uh, Jeremiah. They all so far have said the same thing. Israel's guilty, really, really guilty, but God has made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has made a covenant promise to David that he can't break. All of that includes David's greater son sitting on a throne ruling over the 12 collective tribes of Israel from Jerusalem. So that all has to happen. And it's not going to happen because Israel suddenly gets good. It's going to happen because God in his sovereignty is going to birth them in a moment, in a day, a nation born in a day. The same way that Tyler suddenly saw the grass greener, suddenly the sun shined and the birds sang, the same way that he saved you and converted you in a moment of time, the same way that he deposited his spirit, opened your eyes, opened your ears, and suddenly the Bible made sense to you. Isn't that what we were just talking about, Dwight, before we started tonight? He said, now that I see sovereignty, he said, the Bible's redundant now. Everywhere I look, sovereignty, God's sovereign, God's sovereign, all over the Bible. So he said, and I didn't see it for so long. And then suddenly one day you see it. Suddenly the word is open to you. Suddenly the word of God makes sense to you. And suddenly your whole life makes sense. Suddenly the things that are happening to you make sense because you recognize that this is all according to the word and the judgment and the determination of an absolutely righteous and holy sovereign God. Israel is going to have the experience you had. And they're going to have that experience Collectively, a nation born in a day. Does that help answer your question? Amen. Okay, very, very good. Um, can I have 10 more minutes? Yes. Okay, turn to Zechariah. Zechariah is the second to the last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah is just before Malachi. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets. And we're going to start in Zechariah chapter... 2, and then we're going to read the entire rest of the book tonight, so (laughs) no, 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 no. Much of this is going to sound very familiar to you, and I'm doing this on purpose. Those of you who are here tonight and also come on Sunday mornings, when we get to Matthew 24, all the pieces are going to fit. I, I am constantly amazed at the providence of God. I don't plan these things this way where what we're teaching on Sunday morning and Wednesday night just happens to coincide this way. But it just does. These last several weeks, whether you know it or not, we've been building the platform that is going to be essential to understanding Matthew 24 when we get there. And this is one of those places where you're going to see Zechariah use language that is going to be paralleled in Matthew 24. Chapter 2. Then I lifted up my eyes. Uh, Let's not do that. Wait, let me show you something. Um, Look at chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, so who is Darius? King of who? Darius the Mede, right, the Medo-Persians. So this gives you some idea where the time frame is. This is in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, or Darius, which means that this is right around that same period. So we have some sense of where this fits historically. Now, chapter 2, verse 1. Then I lifted up my eyes, and I looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to measure Jerusalem to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out and another angel was coming out to meet him and said to him, run, speak to that young man saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. So one angel is going to measure Jerusalem and another comes and is saying it's practically immeasurable. It won't even need walls because it won't have any enemies. And there will be so much cattle, so much wealth, so many people, for the multitude of men and cattle in it. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Okay, so this is being written during a time when Israel's in captivity, and Jerusalem is constantly under siege. And what is Zechariah saying? There's a time coming when you're not even going to need a wall. God is going to be like a wall of fire to protect you from all your enemies. And you're going to live at peace, and you're going to have a multitude of men and cattle. Verse 6, Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have dispersed you. Now look very, very carefully at this language, because this is really important language. For I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens declares the Lord. Okay, so he says, come back, come back from all the areas where I dispersed you, the land of the north, Syria, all the northern areas where they've scattered and dispersed. Come back because I scattered you to the four winds of the heavens. Let's just do this because it's worth it. Keep your finger there. Turn to Matthew 24. So, give you a jump on what's coming. And I think this will just show you how easy it is to interpret the Bible when you just let the Bible interpret the Bible. Chapter 24, verse 22, he's talking about a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The elect there is a reference to Israel. It's not a reference to the church I'll prove that. We'll talk about it when we get closer to it. Then he describes how he's going to return and there will be these things going on in the heavens. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. These are all things that Joel predicted. Again, Old Testament prophecies. And then you'll see the Son of Man, verse 30, coming in the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other what does that mean here he says for i have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens declares the lord here he says i will gather together the elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other yeah do we have to interpret that at all now how easy was that we just let the bible interpret the bible In Zechariah, while they're under punishment, God disperses the elect to the four winds. Matthew says he's going to gather the elect from the four winds. It's the exact same language. Because what Jesus himself is saying in Matthew 24 is the same thing that the prophets have all said. Which is why earlier tonight I said Jesus isn't presenting new stuff, he's confirming what the prophets have already said is going to happen to Israel. They're going to be gathered. And he says the same thing that the prophet said. They're going to be dispersed, and they're going to be gathered. That's easy now, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I'm back in Zechariah. Ho, Zion, escape. This is verse 7. Ho, Zion, escape you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. In other words, this is all part of that. Come out of the lands of the north. Come away from those places, and come back to your land. For thus says the Lord of hosts, After glory, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of God's eye. The apple of his eye is a very common phrase. We know that phrase. Really, it means the pupil, the center of the eye. But that means God's eye is always on Jerusalem, always on Israel, even though they've been scattered wherever they are. God knows where they are. You are the apple of his eye, and whoever touches you touches the very center of God's eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. And then I will dwell in your midst, And you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. Okay, now, wonderful, wonderful language, but here we have yet another prophet saying the exact same thing. God's going to punish Israel. They deserve to be punished. God has a good case against them. But then he's going to restore them. And he's going to restore them to a level of blessing that they have never experienced. Jerusalem has always had walls. But they are going to reach the point where God himself, what is the language here, will be a wall of fire around her. And will be her glory in her midst. God has so many plans for Israel, so many plans for Jerusalem, And he is going to, yet again, we see the same thing, gather them, collect them. The same language that we see in Zechariah 2 that says he scatters them to the four winds is the exact same language you see in Matthew 24 when he gathers the elect from the four winds. He's not done with Israel. You got it? Am I engaging in dead horse beating yet? That's what the text says. But it's what the text says, and it says it over and over and over again, and that's what I hope I'm doing. By even so, attested to by the familiar scriptures like in the Lord thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth exactly when he says when you pray and he's talking to Jewish disciples who he is sending out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and says when you pray say thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven yeah what are they saying can you see now Why, before Jesus left the planet, after 40 days of talking to them about the kingdom, they say, will you return the kingdom, restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? They know what's coming. The church doesn't seem to know what's coming. The church is too busy patting itself on the back and going, this is about us. But next week, we'll read the next chapter in Hosea, and then more from Zechariah. The prophets all kind of have just one message. The prophets are all just telling Israel, Return and repent, but since you're not going to, God's going to punish you, and then he's going to restore you. And that is the prophets. You know, the prophets aren't doing a whole lot of, like, blood moons and shmita, you know? (laughs) They're not promoting date-setting schemes to sell books. The prophets are all talking about God's faithfulness to Israel, and that is such a huge chunk of the Bible and yet it is such a misunderstood and overlooked portion of the bible that if you just read it like i hope i demonstrate tonight if you just read it and give some sense of what it's saying it will inform you when you get to the new testament there is a eschatological position out there that insists that the verse that we just looked at that the angel goes and gathers the elect from the four winds from every end of heaven they say that's the rapture of the church But if you compare scripture with scripture, as we did tonight, we know what it means. We don't even have to interpret what it means because the Bible tells you what it means. And if you just do that, all the the controversies in Matthew 24 clear right up. They They go away. And suddenly, Matthew 24 is not a difficult or confusing passage, despite the way that the church has systematically twisted it to try to make it about us. Anyway, we'll get to all that. You got it? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff for one night. Thank you for your patience. We'll just pick up there and keep going next week. Until someone cries uncle. <laughs> when somebody goes, that's it. I can't do it anymore, Jim. I get the point. That'll be the tone of voice they say it in. Go, I can't do it. <laughs> Let me up. I can't take it. And then then oh, we'll stop. I'll swoosh <laughs> You'll squash their mouth. <laughs> Be quiet. I want more. <laughs> yes, sir. Of, of what advantage then does the Jew have? Much in many ways. Much because in many ways. they were entrusted with the oracle of God. Absolutely. And Paul says, and they have the covenants, and they have the promises. They, they and according to whom Christ came. Yep. They were given undeniable. They saw things that... It was un unden- it was uh, would be undeniable to, to to say that there is a God. Yeah. They were given utter proof that there is a God. I'm thinking pillar of fire at night, smoke and during the day, pretty the good evidence. When they went through the river, through the ocean. They, yeah, the covenantal folks can find comfort in the fact, or in their belief that God's cut off Israel. I don't see how they can find any comfort in that because if he indeed has, could he not God. also do the same to the church? Absolutely. I agree with you completely, Thaddeus. If you could convince me that God has turned his attention from Israel and is now satisfying those promises to Gentiles, I have no confidence whatsoever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, you say you don't know how people think that way. I'll, I'll tell you how they think that way. There's, I, I actually, this goes back many years, but I actually got into an online tate with a guy who said this was his example. He said that the way that God is dealing with Israel is by saving some of them by bringing them into the church. <clears throat> and the way that that satisfies the promises is like this. He said, "If I promise my son that on his 16th birthday I'll buy him a Volkswagen." then that's a promise, a covenant I've made with my son. But if on his birthday, I don't get him a Volkswagen, but I get him a Mustang GTE, have I kept my promise or not? Well, I didn't get him a Volkswagen like I promised, but I got him something so much better that that's what God is doing with Israel. He's made them all these land promises and kingdom promises, but he's going to give them something so much better which is to put them in the body of Christ. Okay, I agree. You're shaking your head. I wrote back to him and said, no, your analogy is wrong. If you were to carry your analogy through to your theology on your son's 16th birthday when he walked outside looking for the Volkswagen, you would say, no, I gave the kid down the street a Mustang and in that way I kept my promise to you because that's what his theology is. His theology is that God made promises to Israel and kept them with the church, and so you said, "I don't know how they do it." That's how they try to do it, but because it's not biblical and because it's what's that word wrong, <laughs> it, it well then even their analogies come apart. It's not consistent. It's not biblically consistent. The Bible is consistent with itself, and if you try to impose an unbiblical theology onto it, you can't help but create confusion. And once you get it, like tonight, again, I'm going to make reference to them. When we looked at Zechariah 2, then we went to Matthew 24, I looked up, I saw Marilyn's eyes, her eyes lit up, and she got it instantly. Because the Bible's consistent with itself, and when you see it, it's like, bang, there it is. And you can't even argue about it anymore. And once you see it, just like Dwight saying, once I saw sovereignty, the Bible gets redundant because it says the same sovereignty on every page... Well, then how easy was it for Conrad to say, well, then even Paul said, what advantage has the Jew in every way? Because once you see it, the whole rest of the Bible makes sense. It all falls into place piece by piece by piece because it's consistent. But if you impose inconsistency on the Bible, of course you're going to end up with confusion. Sure you will. Yes, sir. Well, we were in uh, at least one covenantal church which taught that the Jews were sidelined temporarily Mm -hmm. because they knew that they were going to come back into God's grace. Yeah, it's interesting how many different variations and ideas there are out there. Even the amillennialists say, well, there's got to be some kind of restoration for Israel. But usually how they'll define that is not an establishment of kingdom and Jerusalem, and all that stuff. Instead, what they'll say, again, because church gets prominence, is that they'll say there's going to be a large remnant of Jews converted to Christ right at the end, and that's how those promises get kept. You're nodding and saying, right, yeah. That's the common theology. This is not what the Bible says. Not even close. Messianic Yeah, there's going to be this huge Messianic Jewish movement, this big outbreak. But that doesn't satisfy the Bible at all. The prophets don't say anything even close to that. I had a pastor one time, he even said, we shouldn't pray the, the end of the prayer where thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it, because it's never going to happen. Wow. And did you run for the door? Because you should. I just stood there. And I thought, you should. What is he saying?
1: Mean, you should
0: stand up and say, excuse me, sir, I have a question for you. When did you acquire more authority than Jesus? You know, and if you can't answer that question, we got to go. <laughs> by lies for your whole lifetime, how how you just become desensitized and, and you can't you know you know it's wrong but you can't process it and it's hard to define why it's wrong. Yeah, it is because you haven't had the truth because you don't have the truth you don't have the framework to work with. That's right. You know, Tom and I, I mean that's exactly how we were when we came out of California. Tom and I were just talking about there are a couple of other guys who came out of that church who have. <coughs> online YouTube videos and stuff that they're trying to do. And it's it's a disaster. It's sad to watch. Because they're carrying the confusion from that church into their own teaching. But now without a guy to guide them, they're just running roughshod over the Bible and making stuff up right and left because they were so ill taught going out the door. And it's really, really obvious that the fruit of that ministry is confusion. Right?